All right, so welcome everybody back to the United States Border Patrol Academy's podcast. We have today with us a very special guest, Chief of the United States Border Patrol, Rodney Scott. Chief, thank you for visiting us once again. Well, thank you for having me here today. It's a great day to be in uh, New Mexico. And if, if you don't know, so this is Saturday, actually before uh, before Christmas. And so uh, in a, instead of being home, uh, visiting with family, he chose to come out here and visit with the trainees today because of what they're going through with the COVID environment and everything and, and being shut up in here in the uh, in, on the academy base and not being able to see their own families. I wanted to get out and kind of uh, and, and talk to them and, and I guess show your support. Yeah, I've been monitoring from afar, if you will, just the conditions that the necessary precautions were taken for for COVID. But trying to put myself in the in the trainees' position and how challenging this could be. So I just really wanted to come out and wish them a Merry Christmas and let them know we're thinking about them and we're doing everything we can to uh to change the change with the science as the science says we can do new things and maybe not shut everything down constantly. So, you know, one of the unique things about the United States Border Patrol, different from the military and some others, we all know what these men and women are going through. We have all started at this exact same point and progressed through our careers to where we are now. So whether you're the chief of the Border Patrol, whether you're a sector chief, or just a good hard-charging, ground-pounding Border Patrol agent with 20-plus years in, everybody started at the same point, the United States Border Patrol Academy, our home. Yeah, I agree. And I was having flashbacks today as we walked around uh, the, the base here. I, I attended the academy in Glencoe, not in Artesia. Uh, but other than the trees surrounding it, a lot of it is the same. And, uh, and uh, it's a great time. It's a great learning environment. Um, but being away from family for that long is challenging. And then I was not cooped up on the base the whole time. So uh, I wanted to come down here, walk around, talk to some of the guys and and, and try to make sure I can relate to that as well and figure out how to make it better for them. And from the looks of things, I know they, they certainly appreciated it. And so let's talk about you for a second. So 28 years in the United States Border Patrol. You're from, if I read it right, Zanesville, Indiana originally? Yeah, it's a tiny little tiny little dot on a map. How yep, in the just world? Just outside of Fort Wayne. How did you find the Border Patrol? So I would say the Border Patrol kind of found me. So uh, my dad, we had a little uh, family farm, a little less than 60 acres. Uh, but you can't make a living on that. It was more of a hobby for my for my dad. Uh, he was an engineer. But when the Rust Belt and the Midwest all shut down, manufacturing started moving to Mexico. Uh, basically, his job moved to Mexico. So when I was 16, I found myself in Nogales, Arizona, uh, because my dad was now working in Nogales, Mexico, crossing the border uh, every single day for about 21 years. I think he did that. Uh, and then I got exposed to uh, the border environment first uh, and then the Border Patrol. And I've always loved the outdoors, obviously growing up a farm kid. And then all of a sudden, and, and law enforcement in general, but all of a sudden I see uh, these guys driving around these off-road vehicles and reading stories in the newspaper. Uh, looks like fun. Yeah, it, it looked like a lot of fun. I can tell you the story one when I really decided I wanted this job. And the individual just retired. Uh, I'm not going to give his name, but uh, he'll know who he is. I was standing at the Deaconcini Port of Entry, and this was before it was remodeled. And a friend of mine was introducing me to a Border Patrol agent, family friend of theirs. And uh, I don't remember what the call was, but basically he got a call on a radio. And he said, hey, sorry, guys, I got to go. And he's in a, I think he was in a Ram Charger. Uh, but he slams it in reverse, kicks on the lights, and he just goes backing up basically this, this, stri- this street over a couple of uh, uh, speed bumps. And then does a, what I would grew up calling a Rockford, basically a J-turn. And just takes off into like out of sight. I'm like... I want that job. (laughs) 
And, uh, and later I ended up uh, applying and started out in San Diego, but, but I got exposed to it in Nogales, Arizona. And it's always about the toys, right? That's the thing that seems to attract us. Whenever we look at the, at the job itself, you see snowmobiles, horse patrol, the motorcycles, all of that. And that's just sign me up if you're an outdoors type of person. It's how I, it really is. And that's kind of how I close a lot of my recruiting statements or even though I'm just talking to, to different groups. But uh, obviously the last part of my career, I spent a lot of time in San Diego, uh, a lot of time uh, in and around Coronado, which is the special ops guys. And uh, different people ask me a lot of questions. And I always went in because they asked me, what about ATF? What about FBI? And I never talked bad about any of our partners. I think they're all very important missions. But I always end it with, Hey, at the end of the day, we have the most toys. Just okay. look around, and we have the options, we have the, the diversity, and we have the most toys. And I think, uh, so you'll see movies or television shows that, that, that represent kind of life as a law enforcement officer and, and uh, numerous uh, types of agencies, and you don't see much about the Border Patrol, but pretty much, I think, uh, from my experience anyway, what you see is what you get. When you see the guys out there, you know, tracking groups, and, and they, they have canines, or they're in pursuits, or they're, they're arresting huge numbers of people, uh, seizing tons of narcotics that's real life that's every day yeah it is every single day and uh to, to the point that it literally it is a, it can be a movie script um not not to put light of it but right here in new mexico uh this last week we had a uh, a pretty significant pursuit and shootout with four or five different locations um, you never know what you're going to get into each and every single day but the job really does matter and it is it's unpredictable um, but when I try to, when people ask me what I do and you start telling stories, even when we're talking to the train, to the students, to the trainees right now, you know, you just get those flashbacks and, uh, you're like, this is an awesome job. Uh, I tell people all the time, I probably love the job most now when I have to tell somebody else what we do, because you can get mired down, as you know, you're the chief of the Academy, you can get mired down in the administrative day in and day out processes, advocating for, for resources and money for our personnel and, and, uh, and you just kind of live vicariously through the significant incident reports is what I tell people. Um, but when you really stop and think about how important this mission is to the country, whether it's uh, whether it's really appreciated or not, put put that aside. I think most people do. But, but I think in the media right now, we have some challenges. Um, it's a movie script that people would pay to go to. And this is an awesome job. I, I couldn't agree more. And I want to talk more about the uh your, your experience as B1, our chief, in a second, but go back to for a second. You kind of took an unusual path. You're an actual commercial pilot, and that's kind of the way that you got into the Border Patrol looking at that end, but ended up uh, staying a ground pounder. So when uh, I joined the Border Patrol in 1992, you had to be a Border Patrol agent for three years before you could be a pilot. Uh, so I'd gone through flight school, was flying for a small company, a small corporation out of Nogales. Um, actually flew over here a couple times. So they just, Factory U is the name of it. They've since sold it off. It's now a corporation, but um, that's what I wanted to do. So I joined up with, that was my career goal, do my three years. I already had all my flight certificates. Um, and I was telling the story uh, to the group of students earlier that uh, I still remember the first time because there weren't any pilot slots available at first. So uh, first time pilot slot came open, uh, I was eligible for it. Coincidentally, I was working a large group. If anybody's still uh, listening to this for Imperial Beach, it was Compost Ditch north of Monument Road, taking down a group of about 50. And uh, the, back then we would call them Fox, but the helicopter came in to back us up. He's shining the, the, the spotlight. I jokingly called a mobile flashlight um, on the group. 
And, and back then, you didn't have to ask, you know, is, is air support here? You could feel the rotor wash. Uh, but part of a tree, literally the top part of a dead tree broke off from the rotor wash and barely missed me as it landed. And instead of having the reaction that, that most people might have, uh, my reaction was, I don't want to be the guy holding the flashlight just yet. <laughs> so I did not apply. And then that process kind of repeated itself uh, several times. I transferred from Imperial Beach to Chula Vista. And it's hard to explain to people that haven't moved uh, within the Border Patrol, but it's it's invigorating. All of a sudden, there's new management style. There's new area to learn. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not ready to do the pilot thing yet. I want to I want to do this for a couple of years. Um, long story short, I ended up in Nogales, similar. And then I, I look back. I have no regrets whatsoever, uh, but I just had so much fun doing this job. I decided I didn't want to be the guy looking at a TV screen and or I a bet. flashlight. As you're telling that story, you can probably you're replaying it in your mind just as it was as if it were yesterday. Yeah, you're there. Yep. Yeah. So you were class two fifty two. That's correct. Uh, it's uh, May eleventh, nineteen ninety two, is when you uh, when you stepped into this uniform. Still remember your class chant? I do. Two five two, pride, integrity, honor, true. We're the class of two five two, but I can't do it justice because uh, our our guy that chanted it, it was a. Uh, a guy named Kenny Anderson who just retired, and we were somewhat infamous in the academy because he would end it. He was an Army guy, and he would always end it with 252. <laughs> so for years, whenever anybody saw us, they would, they would kind of chant that. Uh, but, yeah, those were some meaningful, very impactful times in, uh, in my life going through the academy. And we tell the trainees this as they're going through is that that class number will forever mean something to you, just like your, your classmates. You still keep in touch with classmates? I do, and I'll let a little secret out here. So I never in a million years envisioned myself having this job. I don't know if other people did or not. I'll leave that up to them. Um, but I have a, a small e, uh, like a, uh, email address, if you will, that's that's got my classmates on it. And uh, that bond is so tight. I told them from day the day I became chief, I'm like, hey, rank and chain of command just went out the window. You know, one of the benefits of having the chief as a classmate is you have direct uh, communication capability. So uh, they're now my, I shouldn't probably say this to the other chiefs that, that may or may not listen to this, but they're kind of like my spies now that <laughs> keep me up to speed. And it's all and it's all good, but I do still keep in touch with them. And uh, it, it's amazing. It's kind of weird. You'll go years and not talk to them. And then when you do, it's like it was yesterday. And so talking about how uh, uh, you were surprised, that you actually have this on your Facebook page. You and I are friends on Facebook, so I, I was able to look at yeah. it. But you have in quotes, no one was more surprised than I. Is that a reference to your uh, getting B1, or is that a reference to that age-old first line on the memo when you do something wrong? It's exactly both. Cause, <laughs> and we joke about it, but that is a reference for going back to early in my career and uh, many stories that go with that. Um, but no one was more surprised than I. I did not have any – we've talked before, uh, but I, I didn't have any aspiration to be the chief. Um, I I was very, very happy when I got to know Gallus as a second-line supervisor. I thought again about the pilot thing, but enjoyed being out in the field and kind of decided I was good to go. Then it was an FOS, not a watch commander. And uh, pretty much everything ever since then has just been reacting to the moment, uh, stepping up to whatever I was asked to do, or really 9-11 changed it for me quite a bit. Um, Like most agents, I've focused on the immigration and narcotics mission before, and I knew our mission was important. But it hadn't really clicked. And then when I became, uh, when I was asked to go up to headquarters and work in the Office of Anti-Terrorism, uh, and really saw the threats that this country faces every single day that no one ever talks about on the news, it kind of changed. 
it kind of changed things. And the next thing I know, I look turn look, turn around, if you will, and I'm the chief of the Border Patrol, and no one is more surprised than I. <laughs> <laughs> so was it uh, was it an easy decision? I know that uh, you get tapped on the shoulder for these leadership positions. You don't necessarily apply for them, but you do get asked, and you have options, and and you made the decision to uh, to put that uh, fourth star on your collar and and, and assume the reins. Uh, was it tough? It was probably one of the hardest decisions that I've uh, ever had to make in my life. If I get emotional, I apologize. But um, you have a picture behind you that I, when I look at you, I see the picture <laughs> right now. So uh, my family means a lot to me. They always have. The five years that I spent in headquarters, uh, the first time, 2003 to 2008, what I call the forming years, uh, I can't really explain to anybody else how many thing, how many events I missed with my family, some of the stresses that were taking place um, at that time between national disasters and the threat, uh, the terrorism threat, and that's what I was primarily focused on. I was an officer in terrorism. Um, I missed a lot. My family has been unbelievably supportive, and they, even to today, my two daughters and my wife are like, "No, we did it together." You know, I think they they thank God they forget a few of the really. <laughs> hiccups, the really bad moments, if you will. Um, but I'm kind of established. So, and again, this wasn't about me per se, but my youngest daughter is still in high school um, in San Diego. She is in a unique situation that I moved several times, um, but it was within a reasonable commuting distance. So uh, she's one of the few kids in the Border Patrol is probably lucky enough to actually still be going to the same school that she started kindergarten in. And uh, she's the one that came to, I wasn't going to take this job, to be honest. And I, I just, I promised my girls I wouldn't make a move in high school. And then she's the one that came to me and said, I've been really thinking about this. I've been praying about this. Uh, this is the right thing. You need to take the job and I'm willing to move. So they were, they were coming to DC with me originally. That was part of the decision. And then between the COVID and a few other uh, personnel changes, some challenges in DC, uh, they ended up staying in San Diego. Um, so I don't see them quite as often as I would like to. And that trying to, I'm a, you know, I've preached the work-life balance forever and I really believe in it. Um, I feel a little hypocritical sometimes now, but that's a long-winded answer to say, no, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, But I was convinced, if you will, and and no, I did not apply for this job, Uh, but I had conversations with quite a few people um, and uh, my decisions are based in faith. So I prayed about it dramatically and it became very, very clear that I was supposed to do it. Uh, and then the and it's kind of funny. It's like a switch. So the minute I said yes, I'm all in, and uh, and I don't regret it at all because I think this organization is fantastic. Uh, but I think we can get better, and we're really focused on uh, kind of not a shift. We focus on operational control. We love operations, right? We're all tactical, uh, but that's not headquarters' responsibility. That's the chiefs in the field. Uh, so creating an environment in headquarters that where people are excited about coming to work and excited about. What is we? What are we going to make the border patrol look like in 2025, and in 2030, and in 2035? That makes it better for the next generation and makes sure that we're providing Americans what they deserve, which is the best, most cost-effective border security we can. I, that jazzes me up. Now it's not the same as a vehicle pursuit in any way, shape, or form. I still read those and and miss them, uh, but I am really jazzed up about about investing in our people and making sure this organization's legacy of a family continues. Uh, but we do it in, in a 2025, 2030 kind of model. Well, you hit on it. So it's, it's it's about this legacy that goes back the better part of 100 years and what the future of this organization is going to look like. It's one of the reasons why I love this job so much is because you have the opportunity to impact that 
by how you mold and shape the trainees that are going to be taking our place yep. in a few years. From a B1 standpoint, that has to be huge because you're getting to shape and map out the direction of the organization for, for years to come. Uh, you, uh, We are, and, and, and I say that I am not. Uh, one of the first things I did, I, uh, one of my biggest criticisms of, of – uh, of our organization, and that's a strong word, but I, but I'll, I think I'll stick with it, um, was we weren't really tapping into our senior leaders out in the field in a way I thought we should. As a sector chief, uh, I felt like my opinion wasn't really factored in to the level it should be. So the first thing I did was create an executive board where all the major decisions of the Border Patrol now are being run through the, the chiefs out in the field that are actually having to deal with it every single day, to include you, as you know, because the other thing I've, I've been – big, big part of my, my career development. I've believed this for a long time, um, and I'm making sure that we instill it and build it into our processes, is there is no decision that a leader in the Border Patrol will ever make that has longer-term positive or negative impacts on this organization than personnel selections. And I'm putting a lot of focus on making sure that we are giving that frontline agent a leader that he can look up to, respect, and that can actually help him when he needs help. Um, and I'm not saying we didn't in the past, but we're putting a whole new renewed focus on that. And that jazzes me up as well. I, I, we've got to leave this better than we found it, and I think we're positioned we can do that. Well, you've uh, reintroduced several concepts in, in your relatively short time in this uh, in this position that you've got, and, uh, and a lot of it's very exciting. Before we go to that, so you've been in position for you know a better part of a year now, officially. Anything unexpected? Anything that you got there? You thought, man, I would never have thought this job would have been about this. COVID. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not to point out the obvious, but I I stepped in, kind of had a plan. Um, I'm proud to say that the transition between Chief Provost and myself was, uh, I highlight as being one of the smoothest transitions ever in the Border Patrol, uh, because we we saw things uh, very similar. Um, I communicated with her. She communicated with me very well. Uh, she was sharing with me some of the ideas and concepts going forward. So I was just trying to tweak and, and evolve. But I kind of had a plan, if you will. For example, very tactical level, I'd plan to get in, get out to every single station and sector. As I haven't worked in South Texas that much, and I've never been assigned to the northern border. Um, all that went away with COVID. And then, of course, uh, the meetings and the D.C. can quickly uh, quickly overwhelm just just the clock, the calendar, if you if you allow it. Uh, so uh, trying to balance that and continue to move forward. But I would argue that the team at headquarters, and again, it's not about me, it's about that whole leadership team, we're continuing to move forward and make some real real good progress because of, uh, in spite of COVID. And then I, I, I'm rambling, but I got to highlight, uh, our culture is fantastic and there's parts of our culture that are not. So uh, COVID actually forced us to use technology in a way we've never ever used before and i think that's a good part of it um so that that was unexpected though so working from an alternate location because you know border patrol doesn't telework mm-hmm. um was like like profanity it, it, if i'm in a uniform i have to be at my cube and i, I laughed because i'm like wait a minute your whole career i gave you a set of keys and sent you off into no man's land and trusted you but now if you're going to work even though you have full connectivity at home you have to be here um, so we're really pushing technology on the administrative and leadership side and building a more high-speed, low-drag team. And that allowed me to talk to unbelievable – you would think I didn't get to get out, but we leveraged that VTC and that capability. It allowed the deputy chief and I, Raul Ortiz, awesome, awesome teammate, 
uh, to reach out and touch every single station within all, pretty much record time, uh, do town halls, do Q and A's. Um, so COVID has been horrible, but there's been a, there's been a good side to it too. That's, you know, one of the other things I think that, uh, in our culture that it's kind of uh, forced that change, if you will, uh, sick leave. That was one of the things, you know, you and I coming up in the organization, you pushed through. You did not take sick leave because you were, it was seen as bailing out on your uh, on You were your weak. Teammates. You, were, you, yeah. you needed to show up. You needed to be there for the job and, and get it done. And now that's all flipped on its head. Now to do the right thing by your team, if you don't feel good, you, you need to stay home. Correct. And I would, I would argue that's a little bit about how do we improve the culture because the, the thought process and the intent behind it was good. Uh, but I'll go back to a family example. And it was kind of a joke, but but it, but it means something here. Every year we'd go to the end-of-the-year award ceremonies for, for the school, elementary, whatever, right? Every single time they gave out awards for perfect attendance, my wife would elbow me and go, that's the kid that made ours sick because their parents forced him to come to school even when they shouldn't have. And, uh, and it really is that, right? We're learning more and more to, to look out for each other and to be that teammate. Sometimes you've got to take a knee, and you taking a knee protects everybody else. And that's – we're the hard chargers, man. We're not used to taking a knee. It is. It's something that uh, I think for the better has been a good change. You're – so I, I read on your uh, on your bio, uh, as a leader, and this is this goes to kind of some of the things that you've uh, introduced in your time – so your, uh, your mission statement, your professional mission statement is provide enthusiastic leadership that empowers those around me to excel. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means to you? Yeah, let me give you a little background on it too. So going way back to, uh, I think I was probably when I was first line supervisor under Legacy INS, we still had, we went to Dallas for some leadership training and they forced us to write out a mission statement. What's important to you? What are your values in a mission statement? That was, I'd never done that. And I thought it was kind of cheesy and silly. And they, but they said, hey, you're going to feel like this is cheesy and silly. We just want you to do it. But that was the first time it really forced me to sit down and think about, well, yeah, what do I stand for? What do I want? If I'm a leader and I'm a new first-line supervisor, then what in this small teams, right? What do I, how do I want to lead it? What do I want it to do? Um, and I don't know. I just had this realization that I've never, ever worked on a team where the leader knew it all. And the best teams I ever worked on were just that. They were teams. Um, so that's kind of been my mindset for, for quite a while. I've refined it over the years, if you will, but that's literally what I'm doing at headquarters. I, especially headquarters is too big. I, I don't have the depth and knowledge of procurement laws and even some of the HR laws. Um, I, I don't have the depth and knowledge of some of the technology stuff. You know, I can, I can do social media better than the average person my age, and that's about it, right? I, you get me into the settings or something on a phone, I'm done. Um, but as a team, if you create, and I am adamant about this, if you create an environment where people are excited about coming to work today and where there really is no dumb idea, where you're allowed to actually have open dialogue and debate, um, it just, it excels. And it's never failed me yet. So that's really, that's what I did in each one of the sectors I worked at. I didn't try to solve world hunger. I didn't come in and line out, you know, a 32-step process that, that we're going to do over the next couple of years. Um I, I have a, a rule in hiring people. Uh, it's it's. I'll, I'll use a, a nicer term. There's there's a book that says uh, it's called the No A Hole Rule. It's a little bit like that. I and probably better to say don't hire jerks. Mm. So that's another part of that. Creating that enthusiastic team. I tell people all the time. I don't care if you're the best at what you do. I need somebody that can get along with others. I I can train the technical skills. I can't replace personality. Um, and it's just worked for me. 
Because when you have people that want to show up, they'll do 10 times the work of that genius that doesn't want to be there. So much easier to occasionally rein somebody in or adjust their course as opposed to having to flog somebody down the road. Yeah, I used to see in the field all the time. I go, I'd rather have to pull somebody back than shock them into action any day. And I think a lot of this kind of goes to the tone that you're setting, and that's uh, and that, that speaks a lot to, to what that means to you. One of the other things that you've uh, that you've reintroduced is our motto, our guiding principle of honor first. And so, one of the things I know that you charged me with was was instilling that in the trainees from day one, and and making that part of who they are as a as a law enforcement uh, professional. So I think no better uh, no better person to hear it from than than the chief and the and the man that's uh, pushing this. Talk about honor first and what you want that to mean to all of us that wear this uniform. Sure. So uh, maybe a weird way to start, but I'm going to start at the absolute basics. So I truly believe, and I think there's a lot of studies out there and history would would support what I'm going to say here. Law enforcement in a free and open society fails without public trust. It just cannot work. It It will not work without public trust. So how do you get public trust? You do what you're supposed to do. You do it in a professional manner. It doesn't mean people actually like that you have to arrest somebody or whatever else, but but you do it, and then one way to say it is you do it with honor. You do it with integrity. Uh, when I swear in uh, new employees, trainees for the Border Patrol, or whether it's mission support, it doesn't really matter. I've always done the same thing. I hand them our agency's core values, vigilance, service, integrity, and I explain to them that the Border Patrol really likes just, you know, acronyms, short, sweet, so that is what honor first really means. It's, it's, it's an epitome packaged in a couple words of our core values of our organization. But when I'm swearing new people in, before I let them take the oath, I make them verbally state to me that their personal core values align with our organizational core values. And I just tell them, like, there's nothing other than the fact that if they don't, this relationship is not going to go well for either one of us. Um, but, but when they do, and they, I've never had anybody walk out yet, by the way, um, but it makes you think about it differently. But that's what honor first is. I believe that's what it's always been. And as you know, it's been around for a long time. We just uh, we really just haven't focused on it that much. Um, but that's I want every single agent to never forget that. Let's say Border Patrol agent Rodney Scott. The day that I added that Border Patrol agent, it really kind of grayed out the Rodney Scott part. There were public servants that were getting paid by Americans to protect Americans, and they divert, they, they deserve the best. Um, I don't know if there's a real quick, smooth, easy answer to the honor first, but it's literally that everything you do should be consistent with the core values of our organization and should not bring any disgrace to this organization. And that above all, you know, you, you when you're making decisions, you should keep honor first front and center. Uh, that no matter who's going to look at that decision, that our honor as an organization, because you gave up your name a little bit and it's a uniform that says Border Patrol agent on it, uh, that you're representing our entire family. And even now, I think we're seeing it in public, the law enforcement community uh, with that honor, just be professional and, and make decisions just like your grandma or your mom was watching you. And that's kind of taking your lead. So we look at this at the academy for the trainees that are here, not only are they getting the, the very best training in law enforcement so they can do one of the toughest jobs in law enforcement, but we also teach them about how to go about doing that job. So it's not only important that they're able to do it well, but they do it right and for the right reasons. And I think that's where Honor First really starts to come into play in their minds. As a guiding principle, you alluded to it. It's, uh, you know, it's not 
Jason Owens or Rodney Scott doing something, it's a border patrol agent in the eyes of the public. And so that guiding principle, the reason for why they do what they do on and off duty, has to mean something to them at, at their core. Exactly. It becomes who, who you are as a person. It's not just something written on paper. It's not something you, you, you do aspire to it, but literally it's part of you. It's doing what's right. When, I mean, it's overly simplified, right? But it's just, it's doing what's right, regardless of who is right and regardless of who's watching. Um, I, go ahead. No, I, 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 I couldn't have said it better. So we talk about this, uh, the, the environment that law enforcement find themselves in right now. And what I tell the trainees, and I think I've heard you say it a few times as well, this is nothing new for the Border Patrol. We've kind of lived in this adverse environment because of certain aspects of our job and our mission. And so we've survived it for, for decades, and, and it's, it may be relatively new to other law enforcement entities, but that's also why something like Honor First is so very important to us and who we are, and I think it's what makes us that family. I, I agree fully. And a little bit different presentation I gave earlier today, but when I've t- spoken at some of the classes here, uh, I remind the uh, the students and trainees that are graduating um, that it's your job to fix it just as much as it is mine. So honor first is that as well. It's to remind them that every single day, whether they like it or not, they're being watched. Where we drive, when you get coffee, uh, when you get lunch, it's not just the arrest that gets videotaped and, and you've got to protect yourself and others, and we're explaining that. Uh, and you should be able to stand up and defend any of your actions at any time. It's the other 364 days. You're always out there visible. You're, you're representing this to, to some people, to a lot of people. Think about it. This uniform is the first thing that they see. They associate with the United States of America. And that's a lasting impression. Uh, whether it's on a TV or whether it's face-to-face, we are representing what, what is the United States. How do we treat people? How do we interact with people? Honor first. That's why it's kind of so hard to define, right? But honor first is all of that. Uh, and then just making sure that, uh, that you make the right decisions and, and you do it consistently. And you hit on something when you were talking to the trainees today about, uh, you know, I think one of the questions had to do with, you know, how do we deal with people, our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones that have uh, a different perception of who we are and what we do based on a narrative that may be one-sided, quite frankly. It's, uh, it's, it's not entirely accurate or it's missing information and and uh, or it's just false or it's just outright <laughs> false yeah. absolutely so uh, what's your advice to them on how to handle that that certainly the people come particularly from border communities that interact with the border patrol on a daily basis and they're going to have friends and they're going to have uh, family members that that may be thinking inaccurate uh, information about border patrol and what we do there's a couple things to this so so on a very very general basis just be real and make sure that people remember that when they're saying that, they're talking about you. So sometimes I've, I've had some luck in that conversation. Um, I have friends on both sides of what you would consider now the political spectrum, uh, some a lot farther on, on the, the left, if, if you want to make it right and left than you would think. But I've had some really good open dialogue with them that I'm like, you realize what you just said is about me. I'm that person. And, but you go to lunch with me, you go to dinner with me, you personalize it, you humanize it. And it makes it harder for people to do these blanket stereotypes, which they shouldn't do on any level, right, but against us as well. But the other piece, I think, where the Border Patrol, where we've failed ourselves or we've failed uh, our workforce, if you will, to a certain extent, is we've never helped empower that discussion. So every indiv- individual agent, for the most part, is going into that discussion 
uh, armed with what they've heard, what they saw, and their own opinions. So one of the other initiatives I kicked off is an initiative uh, called Agent Speak, and it's brand it's brand new. Uh, we it's not to replace public affairs or the border community liaison or anything like that, but it's an, to acknowledge that a lot of these agents are human beings, pretty much every single one of them, right? And they have their own network of friends and family, some of which goes into Central America, the middle of America. Some literally goes into Central America. Um, give them the information so they can actually, in a better way, explain what we do. Uh, the other thing I talked to the trainees about today was that our, our mission and then our authorities are different. So a lot of times in the media, you'll hear people talking about very, very specific caveats of our, of our authorities. Immigration and the mass migration and detaining people, or maybe it's narcotics. Uh, but I remind them all the time, that's not our mission. Border Patrol, uh, that, that's not it. Our mission, our job is to make sure that we, on behalf of every American, that we know who and what is in or in our home. It's that simple. And we work in lockstep with CBP officers at the ports of entry. Uh, that's like the front door of our home. And when somebody comes there, they, they apply the threat assessment Congress has given them, if you will, and we decide who can come in and not. Our job is to make sure everybody uses that front door. And anyway, Agent Speaks is trying to, to uh, simplify that message more and more so that every agent out there, because I think we ourselves can get tied up in those individual mission sets as well. And then all of a sudden, we're getting into a debate about who should or shouldn't be allowed into the country or what are the asylum rules. Well, that's all Congress's responsibility, and our job is to protect America by applying the laws, make sure nobody crosses in between the ports of entry. Providing our agents with, with good, solid talking points and grounding our mission back in what it really is instead of some of the uh, political rhetoric, um, I, I think we can do a better job, and that's what Agent Speaks is doing. So Agent Speaks is going to be a volunteer class. Uh, any agent in the field anywhere can basically go online, Go volunteer first. We'll give them a PowerPoint. We'll walk them through some slides. And then if they want to talk to uh, their church group or a civic group that they have access to, the Border Patrol doesn't normally have access to, um, I'm going to give them on-duty time to do it. And then try to get our message out there in a with a real face that these people know. It's not some talking head. It's not the chief of the Border Patrol that's often seen as a, as a bureaucrat or I have to say something for whatever reasons. It's somebody they've known their entire lives. It's my neighbor. It's the guy I go to church with. It's a guy that I go uh, to the VFW with. It's a person that coaches a soccer team because every Border Patrol agent out there is also a community member. Without that, I think it's a, you mean, the narrative gets driven by somebody who probably has an ulterior motive or, or an agenda. It's crazy to think that uh, the discussion about whether or not we should even exist is based on one small aspect of what we do. Correct. let that happen, it's just uh, we can't. We can't. And, uh, and there's no the big challenges that we have, just so everybody's total transparency. 24-hour news cycle. Um, I've spent a lot of time with pretty much every network. Contrary to popular opinions, we don't play favorites. Just some networks put us on more often than others. But even that, I'll spend six, eight hours, maybe even more, a couple of days, and you get like two minutes. And they get to pick what they highlight. So we're trying to use forms like this. We're trying to use forms like social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever the next one happens to be, to get our message out a little bit more unfiltered and more uh, just available, a little more transparency uh, to the public. We're not there yet, but we're pushing it out. And again, it's really just to provide the transparency and the whole story instead of just the little sections of it. Uh, I'll use a horrible example. Uh, 2014, uh, I spent a couple of days with it with a 
with I won't even use names, but with a couple of reporters, and they were supposed to be doing this this very generic, just hey, this is what goes on on the border, um, neutral story, if you will, true journalism, not spun in either direction. Uh, that story ended with the reporters in RGV coining the phrase "kids in cages," even though they knew everything that was really going on, and they knew that we could not legally release someone under 18 years of age without releasing them to an adult guardian and or the Office of Refugee Resettlement, who is basically the federal level of CPS. They knew all that, but they chose to leave that out of the story. So how many people out there are making judgments on us based on a partial story that what was the alternative? That's the other catch. we got to ask sometimes. Okay, and this is what I encourage agents to do. Don't argue. Just okay, what's the alternative? If there was no border security, if there was no law enforcement, what's your, what's your solution? If, if we don't want these, these juveniles held here in our, in our air-conditioned facility with water, food, you think they should be released? Really? Just let go with no adult supervision, an eight-year-old into the streets of Laredo? But having those more open conversations because – that it's it's easy to judge and criticize when you don't have to offer solutions. Exactly. And that's going back to Laredo, because you kind of touched on a moment for my career. Nothing really gets said or not enough gets said about the uh, those alternatives if we don't have those folks in our custody, the, the stash houses that they're stuck in that certainly are inhumane conditions, the tractor trailers that they're locked in, what actually kills people uh, every year. It seems like that would take precedent over... Uh, alternative story about uh, about kids in cages, and I wonder why that doesn't ever get brought up. Yeah, I don't know. So the media is uh, it's interesting these days. It's really challenging. It's actually very very sad. So when I talk to college groups now, and uh, they'll ask me things about threats. Actually, almost any group, but I focus more on this on younger uh, younger generation. They're like, "Hey, what do you think our biggest threat we're facing today is?" And I go, "The death of journalism." To be quite honest, because it's harder and harder in the world today, but especially in America, to be able to decipher truth from somebody's spun story. There are mainstream uh, media outlets that that traditionally I would have listened to them, but now I've been part of the event, and then I see what they report, and I'm like, what? Like, uh, It's going to be challenging going forward because how do you make good informed decisions if you only have part of the story? So I hope people have noticed over the last year and a half, even before I became chief, but I've really tried to, to kick in the afterburners on this a little bit. We've pushed the transparency of this organization past anything we've ever seen. We're doing monthly rollouts of our numbers, our stats, and they're not spun in any way. Some people try to spin it and say that we're trying to villainize uh, migrants. It's not that at all. We just tell the story. That's it. So uh, a couple of years ago, we couldn't even roll out into the year numbers without like 18 levels of approval, if you will. But now every month we're standing in front of reporters and we're taking any question they want and we're telling them, here's our statistics, here's what we're dealing with. Because I'm adamant, we have a good story. Uh, Our mission is solid. If you want to go into like real baseline constitution, our mission is one of the most clearly defined missions for the federal government there is in law enforcement, much more than many other agencies, to protect the entire nation, immigration, in anything crossing a border into the country, commodity or human beings, clearly a federal responsibility. And I think that's a good story to tell that hasn't uh, hasn't always gotten told in the right light. And that mission speaks to and calls to a certain type of individual that feels that calling and, and 
wants to be a public servant. So I think getting to know the people that wear that uniform is every bit as important to the narrative as just what the mission is. I, I couldn't agree more. I, for me, this is a calling, and I think for most people it is. And then I, it's just it's quite ironic, and I would take this past Border Patrol. Uh, back to your your public servant, if you will, whether it be uh, EMS or law enforcement. Law enforcement has a different little spin to it, though. But how many coaches are law enforcement officers? Well, off duty, they coach, or off duty, they're they're leading uh, some kind of a four H group or a, or a Boy Scouts or volunteering and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff because they just have this fundamental drive that they want to do more than just exist. They want to give back. They want to support the community. They want to be part of a team, and they want to serve. And the, I, I agree. That message, law enforcement in general, that message gets gets uh, missed all the time. And they'll focus on one guy that maybe he is a bad guy. Maybe he just made a bad decision that day. Uh, but And I would say that goes past law enforcement, too. Our society right now is just hypercritical about everything. Um, but we can't change that. So we need to counter it. And if we don't take aggressive action to counter that message, you know, then that's our fault. Because you're not going to change the fact that society's over. You're not going to change society overnight, the fact that they're overly critical. We just need to counter that with, with the truth. Well, let's, let, let's speak some truth about the man in that uniform. Let's talk about Rodney Scott for a second. That could be scary. I put this picture up here for a reason. You're a family man, and that's one of the things that uh, endears a lot of us uh, to you because of the values that you hold. And I'll tell you why. I, I grabbed that picture because I think it is a powerful one. It, it, it tells a very powerful story about you as a person. And uh, and kind of where your where your priorities lie. And it, if you can't see the picture, ladies and gentlemen, it's a uh, it's a view from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and it's looking out over the reflecting pond in Washington D.C. And the Washington Monument is lit up, and in the foreground, you have a man sitting on those steps, looking out at the Washington Monument, and he's flanked by two young ladies, and uh, they have their arms around him, and that's Chief Scott and his daughters, and that is one of his main profile pictures on his social media account. As you know, if you have a social media account that, uh, and you put a picture of, uh, in a position of prominence like that, you know that it, it means something to you at a very personal level. So you can probably deduce from that that, uh, that Rodney's family is everything to him, and I think that's kept him steady and true in all of the positions he's, that he's held. Talk a little bit about the importance of family in this type of a job, in this line of work, and especially in a leadership role like this. For me, it's uh, it's the foundation. It's 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 critically important. And this is going to sound cheesy. I think a lot of people say it. I don't think we really think about it. But each day I come to work, I re- I'm protecting their future. So your legacy, anybody that has kids, especially a family, your most important legacy is leaving, you know, responsible adults to manage the world. Uh, for the next generation, if you will. But we're also supposed to, you know, try to do our part to leave the world in good enough condition they can actually do something about it. Um, but my family, um, family growing up for me w- w- was very important. Uh, I don't even know how to really describe it because it's just sort of, it's fabric kind of who I am. And then I, I love my wife and kids. Where I tell people I'm happily married by choice, and it's kind of a joke. My wife slaps me sometimes when I say that because I'm like, it doesn't mean I'm happy every day, <laughs> but I'm I've made a choice. Nor her. Yeah, that's the more important <laughs> part. Um, but they families, especially in law enforcement in general and the border patrol, they take a pretty big hit, and mine has taken a very very significant hit over the years. But they've been right there with me. Um, we ma- try to maximize the time we have together uh, to, to the extent we can. Um, I've preached work-life balance my entire career. I feel kind of hypocritical sometimes now. 
um, because I don't feel like it's there. But my my daughters, both my daughters, they're they're wise beyond their years a little bit. I'll give you another example in a minute. But uh, they they said it's not about total time; it's about quality time. Right in that picture that, that you talked about, I didn't know that picture was being taken. It was not posed. So anytime that, that we're together as a family, we we try to do things, go do something. You know, we did the whole sequoias or whatever. But when they come to D.C., my every single trip, for whatever reason, my daughters want to go to the Lincoln uh, Lincoln Memorial. And it's more now about, hey, we, we're going to go every time than see anything new or do anything different. Um, and that was, I think that was this last year. And uh, that showed up on my uh, a picture my wife gave me. I'm like, when did you take this? Um, so I think that's a, probably the most, the reason I like that picture most is it wasn't posed. It wasn't fake. Um, that's it. And, and both of my daughters are unbelievably supportive. Thank, thank goodness. We must've done something right. I give my wife most of the credit, but both of them have volunteered to be coaches. They're involved in civic groups. They're involved in leadership groups. They, 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 they will tell you what they stand for, what they believe in. And uh, no matter what I do in the Border Patrol, I think that's my real, my real success right there. And I'll well, give you another story, by the way. Don't ever. This is funny for the headquarters people. Um, my youngest daughter, they, they end up not coming up for whatever reason. I apologize for time, but this you'll like this one. It's kind of funny. Um, one of the big debates within the Border Patrol is dress uniform or rough duty, uh-huh. whether it be the academy, whether it be a sector, whether it be headquarters. Um, and uh, I won't get into all the reasons, but I had made a decision that I was going to switch headquarters back into dress uniform as soon as, as soon as I took over as chief. And that made you popular, I'm sure. Well, now no one knew that decision <laughs> yet. So uh, just before I EOD'd, I, I obviously knew they'd talk to me about having the job. We talked through, so not, I kind of was figuring out what I wanted to do. And I talked to my family. We actually, I mean, I don't talk to them about secret squirrel stuff, but we talked through these things. I've never made a career decision without talking to the family about it. We did it together. And Anyway, I was home for a couple of days because I'd been on detail. And uh, my wife tells my youngest daughter, are you going to tell him? She's at the time uh, 17. Might have been, no, she was 17. Anyway, long story short, uh, she didn't want to. She finally does. And she goes, Dad, you can't change the uniforms. And I'm like, what? that's pretty tactical for you to be saying, you know, what, what do you, why do you care what uniform uh, people at work have each day? And she goes, well, maybe not never, but at least not at first. She goes, you're going to be the brand new chief of the Border Patrol. A lot of these people don't even know you. Why would you go in and alienate half of your workforce for no real reason on day one? And I was like, oh, out of the mouth of babes. (laughs) Yeah. So wise beyond their years. But I also took that as a a little bit of a badge of honor that that they think about it, they know, and they, they really support me beyond just saying, hey, Dad, I support you. You know what I mean? Like they're thinking, they're listening. I wouldn't say that, you know, a 17-year-old is going to give national security advice, uh, but it's amazing what you can learn from your kids if you just listen. And I'm very proud to have a relationship, especially with two teenage daughters, where they actually even talk to me. <laughs> well, but they're, it, you want them to take ownership of it as well, because at the end of the day, our families are part of the Green family as well. This is their part of the Border Patrol by extension. Correct. And, we're the, and every Border Patrol family has given back. They're all public servants. So... We tell the trainees that are here, it's, uh, you know, when it comes to work-life balance, and, and the question always gets asked, how do we do it, especially in these upper-level roles that uh, seems yep. to pull us away more and more. And my advice is always involve your family early and involve them often. If you don't explain to them what you're going, to, uh, going through and, and talk to them about it, they cannot relate, and therefore they really can't be there for you and share in it with you. That's a tough thing for somebody to transition to, especially – the, the type of person that tends to be attracted to these types of jobs. 
I agree fully, but it's actually even more challenging in today's environment, I think, and I, and I underestimated this a little bit. Don't ever forget that the families, and this is really a message for our personnel, don't ever forget that your family could be internalizing a lot of what they're hearing on the media that you blow off. Um, and I won't get into all the specifics, but we kind of struggle with that a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say struggle. It came to light that my wife, my kids were personalizing some of the insults against the Border Patrol. And it was, that's, that's for my daughters, that's my dad. That's, that's my dad's friends. That's uncle, whoever, you know, but um, I think we can forget that because we, we get this, like, even if it's just for show, kind of this callous, you know, shell around us and, and, you know, somebody's yelling at you, you just, you're kind of trained to blow it off. Um, The families aren't. So the more that they're included, uh, you can monitor that and, and make sure that you're dispelling some of those uh, rumors at home as well. And it kind of goes beyond immediate family, but but it, that that's it. And then when you're with them, actually be with them. You know, you've got to disconnect from this job occasionally. I, I told the trainees, but I always tell all the leadership classes, hey, newsflash, but I'm not picking your retirement home for you. So if you don't want to live in a trailer park in the middle of some open desert area or a, or a tent somewhere – Make sure you're investing quality time with the family. It might not, you're going to miss birthdays. That's the job you chose. You're going to miss some holidays, but it doesn't mean you, you really miss it. Make it up somehow. And what I've seen with my family is it's much more important when you're with them that you're actually with them and that it's quality time, even if it can't be total quantity or of time. Um, but make a decision. Take the leave. It's there for a reason. Uh, use it. And the other piece of that, too, though, there's a little bit of a selfish side of this for the chief of the Border Patrol, too. Uh, when morale of the agents is higher and your mental state is more balanced and you don't have all these outside stressors because your, your personal life is balanced, you make better decisions every day. And then you epitomize honor first just automatically. Human beings under stress, especially mental stress, challenges at home, uh, they're more likely to take that hook when somebody's trying to bait you in, into an argument or a fight or whatever else. Um, so part of it is selfish that I need to just I need all of our personnel to have that work-life balance because it really is part of honor first. It's not only at work. Honor first, you, you can't turn that on and off when you come back and forth to work. It's twenty-four-seven thing. And I would say it also probably goes to their safety. They make better decisions yes. toward their personal safety on the field as well. Correct. Chief, any other advice you want to give to the trainees and, and, the, and the workforce that may be listening right now? Now, just, hey, I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. I, I think that this will go out before uh, before Christmas hits or close by. Um, I appreciate everything that they do every single day. Thank you. I want you to know we've got your back. Uh, we're, we're fighting on your behalf. Uh, the mission really, really does matter. And when I say the mission matters, it's not just the guy in green. It's the mechanic that makes sure we have a vehicle out there in the field. It's the HR that makes sure that we actually get paid so that you can actually buy your family gifts, you know. Absolutely. It's the entire process. It's all the instructors here at the academy. And actually, I do want to do an extra shout-out to the instructors here. Um, I think sometimes you forget, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I think it's just process-wise, your impact. And I just want to thank you for stepping up and investing in the next generation of Border Patrol agents. And it's nothing against my generation or a generation after me or before me. But I think in the, to kind of coin a phrase that our current commissioner uh, uses, every, every great organization is constantly trying to get better. That's what defines a great organization. And I've seen nothing but uh, professionalism here at the academy. And they're all volunteers that step up to, uh, to invest in the next generation. Thanks.
your legacy will outlive all of us in a very positive way. Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy New Year. Chief Rodney Scott. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys for joining us from the United States Border Academy. We will talk again soon and on our first.